the best piece of guidance I've always gotten has been to be in command of the details and to really kind of know my details. And then, you know, to make sure that like I prosecute the business, whatever it is, you know, in, in a manner that leaves me with like a clear and moral conscious. And then the third one is to always keep in mind that like the acceptability of your message is not just a function of like the words that leave your mouth, but how they leave your mouth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is the amazing Rana Yaret, general partner at Balderton Capital, one of Europe's leading VCs that has raised almost $4.5 billion across 10 funds over the past 21 years and has backed companies like Revolut, Go Cardless, Comply Advantage, and many more global fintech leaders. In this episode, we discuss the state of fintech and entrepreneurship in Europe and why the continent's startup scene is booming like never before, differences between European and US founders and investors, and some of the advantages found across Europe, Balderton's sustainable future goals, their impact on the firm's investing strategy, and why being a great investor entails producing returns while also improving the world around you, risks of selling a company too soon or too late for your portfolio's IRR, and some lessons and reflections every VC should consider, and just a lot more. Rana, thank you so much for joining and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Uh, first of all, where, where are you calling from? I'm guessing somewhere down in the UK or somewhere in Europe. Thank you so much for having me, Miguel. Yeah, I'm in uh, happy London and uh, it's great to be here and uh, great to be with, with you again. Absolutely, absolutely. Always always a pleasure to chat and I consider myself lucky to be uh, hosting you today. Let's uh, quickly start to hear a bit about your background because you, you were a banker for a long time, you were a Goldman. Uh, and then, of course, you made the transition to venture capital, both finance, but very, very different animals. So may- maybe you can tell us a bit about that transition. Absolutely. So, you know, as you've already alluded to, I, I grew up at Goldman Sachs. I spent 14 years there. I left as as a partner. I would count myself lucky to have had the opportunity that I did you know, in the last five years to run our fintech and enterprise tech investing teams from the uh, Americas and and Europe. And I would say, you know, no banker would ever claim me as as a banker because I spent 12 years inside of Goldman as as an investor. Nonetheless, I think you're right to ask that the transition, how it's gone, because it really has been a big change to go from a institution of 35,000 people plus to a partnership that is very tight, that is equal in vote and a company that's just 60 people. So it's been a great trans- transition. It's one that's allowed me to focus on what I love the most, which is investing, investing in teams and investing in our own team to make Balderton better as well. Yeah. So let's, uh, I guess, talk about you know the, the, the challenges. As, uh, I, I can empathize a little bit with you. I, I come from the banking space, uh, also companies with hundreds of thousands of, of employees. And now I co-lead a, a firm of two. So, uh, but what, what has been the, the hardest part, particularly at the beginning? 
Yeah, look, I, I think the hardest part is also the best part, which is you've got to do everything yourself, right? So when you're in a large organization, there is you know scaffolding around you, safety nets under you, processes that have been tried and tested a thousand times over, right? And so that's obviously not the case in a in a venture firm, even one with a story of a history as Balderton, been around for 21 years. You, you, you still every day in a very positive way kind of tread new ground and have an opportunity to kind of make the policy as you go um, with respect to like the opportunities that that you see. And so kind of getting in that really flexible mindset was actually like the, the biggest challenge. Uh, I think I'm kind of over the big hurdle there and I'm fully flexy now, but that, that definitely is, is the item that uh, took the most time to get around. Let's talk a bit about Balderton. So your, your focus is mostly Europe, although I, I believe you also invest outside of Europe. You know, first, maybe tell us a bit about Balderton, but also I, I really want to hear, and, and I think you can educate all of us, about the state of entrepreneurship and innovation in the continent. Absolutely. Which, by the way, is an enormously exciting place. So we'll start with, with Balderton. So we were born 21 years ago. So we're, we're coming of, of age. Um, and we were originally the Benchmark Europe team. And then um, a little under 15 years, years ago, uh, the Benchmark Europe team split from like Benchmark home base, let's call it, and became Balderton. The only reason for the name is the office was on Balderton Street and it's, uh, and it's stuck. You know, none of the partners who are with us today, uh, bar one, was, um, was there in 2007, which is our managing partner, Bena. And what makes it really special is that, you know, one of the hallmarks of what makes Benchmark special is that we are an equal partnership in vote and economics. And so, you know, the way that we approach every opportunity is that it's a firm opportunity. And the success of, you know, one of my partners is really, truly equally my, my success. And so we're very invested in helping one another. We aim to be the preeminent um, investor or the investor of choice for European entrepreneurs who want to be global winners. You know, we very deliberately have chosen those, those words because we think that you can have global winners out of Europe. And indeed, we've seen global winners out of Europe. And you can do that without having to move your business to the US or anywhere else. So you, you asked very deliberately the question that where do we invest? It's mostly in Europe or in service of European founders. You know, we have a handful of exceptions to that. You know, one, I would say that in our later stage fund, we we invest using FIFA rules. So we scope in Israel in in, in Europe. You know, two is that um, we often have seen you know great European founders start companies in the US and then want to do their next stage of expansion in Europe and very deliberately go out and say, I only want a European investor. So that's also a place where we end up getting involved too. But you know, predominantly we're we're in the business of finding the best founders in London, Stockholm, Berlin, Madrid, Paris, et cetera, really putting boots on the ground in all of those those places and then helping you know those companies become not only local champions, but continental champions, and then if necessary, global champions. Brenda, um, forgive me, this is not accurate, right? But for a long time, I would meet or you would hear from European entrepreneurs who would come to the U.S., right, to launch their companies, to go, they would go to San Francisco, they would come to New York, and because they would say, you know, this is the best place, you know, Europe is not it, there are a lot of challenges. Seems to me that that, that has completely changed, and we're now seeing a ton of unicorns or very successful companies come out. And I, I really want to understand why, you know, what, what has changed that 
you know, is it the people? Is it the government? Uh, is it just the ecosystem maturing? You know, w- what's going on? All of the above, you know, in, in short, and two of my partners, Benar and Saranga, have exactly the experience that you've just articulated, which is that they ended up having to grow their companies in the U.S. before taking them public, even though, you know, they are French and British res- respectively. The answer, as I said, is, is all of the above. So one, you know, the European ecosystem, you can see, is like a decade or a bit behind where the U.S. was. And so natural to that is there isn't um, the infrastructure around growth, you know, whether that is the funding, whether it is the people who have seen it before. And all of that is starting to to change. So we're now getting here in in Europe tribes like we have in, in the U.S., you know, think about like the Auto One tribe, the Rocket tribe, the Spotify tribe. You know, we think we have the Revolut and the Go Cardless tribe here in, here in London. And what these tribes functionally do is that people who worked at these early winners go out and found their own companies. And those who benefited from the early winners become the funders of the ecosystem in each of those jurisdictions. And so as you're seeing that, that's why you're seeing kind of the the rise of not just one um, epicenter of of development like we originally saw in like Silicon Valley, but actually we have like half a dozen here in Europe that are maturing simultaneously because of those those early winners having been kind of spread across the the, the continent. That's kind of the, the first comment. Second comment is, you know, it used to be that you could get um, Series A funding here. But then, you know, once you wanted the growth funding, which Series B, C, and beyond, you know, you had to look away because the fund sizes here were not big enough to support that that follow-on because there wasn't that skill, frankly, in, in growth equity here. And when you looked away, you know, what a lot of founders reported back to us is that they felt then the pull to also move operations away. Right. And so that's one of the big reasons why, you know, we've done two, two things. You know, one, we have slowly grown the size of the early stage fund, which is our flagship fund that we have here, because we want to make sure that we're in a position to not only support the founders with the greatest potential at moment one, but to kind of follow on with that. And then we also launched what we call a growth fund, right? In the US, you'd call it a late venture fund just because of like the check sizes and, and, this, and the stage that allows you know, the best European companies who have made it kind of through that product market fit moment and just are now thinking about how to execute an opportunity to have a local partner who understands culturally what it's like to be here in like Europe, who understands culturally what it's like to grow um, internationally and who can provide trusted counsel, you know, close by. And we're not the only people who have done that, right? I mean, Index has evolved this strategy also. So has Axel. And some of the big PEs have come kind of down market into into growth also, just to give kind of more of that capital coverage. You, you mentioned that Europe, in terms of development of the ecosystem, is maybe about a decade behind the US. What would you say are the main areas of differentiation between the two? Yeah. So the, the first one I have already alluded to, which is like there isn't one kind of epicenter or even kind of like the bimodal that's now evolving in the US, really is kind of spread out. So that's the, the first thing that people like really need to be aware of. Um, the function, the outcome of that spreading out is that you know in the U.S. the entrepreneur goes to Sand Hill Road, to University Avenue, to Union Square. In Europe, it's a shoe leather job. You know we have to go to the best founders in Berlin, Munich, Stockholm, so forth, so on. So that's the second like really big big difference is just the interaction between the founders and 
the funders, frankly. Um, and then, you know, the, the third difference I would observe is the, the availability of, of talent and how that impacts the price at which you pay to grow your, your company, right? So engineering talent is, I would say, less hyperactive here in Europe than it has been in the U.S., it's therefore priced differently. It's also very spread out, right? So, you know, we have portfolio com- companies that have great luck with engineering uh, bases in in Lisbon, in Barcelona, in Manchester, in Cambridge. It's really kind of spread out, right? And so that means that there's a broad pool to access. It also means it's actually cheaper to get to like 100 million because your underlying cost base is less less expensive. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I... I definitely see some parallels with a region like Latin America, for example. And how about the fintech scene? Uh, I mean, that, that's, uh, of course, uh, one of your main focuses. And you, know, you have some amazing companies in your portfolio. Uh, you, you mentioned two of them, uh, GoCarless and Revolut. You know, tell us a bit about the, the fintech scene these days uh, across Europe. Fintech scene in Europe is awesome. I think it's like one of the first areas to have broken out to start with. And the reason because there are you know, a bunch of financial challenges that are just more frequent and larger in, in Europe. You know, I, I've spoken about this in the past, but obviously like payments um, is far more com- complicated, you know, in, in the European Union and the UK than it is in the United States for the obvious reasons, multiple countries, multiple currencies, right? And so, you know, it's not not a surprise that a lot of like the early winners that have come out of, of Europe have been focused on that particular pain pain point, you know, Adyen, Revolut, Go Cardless, et cetera. Um, the second observation I would make is that um, there has been an expansion of fintech excellence outside of London in the last five, five years. It's hard to not say that is a function of, of Brexit. I think it is in some respect a function of, of Brexit. Um, and we have some great like fintech companies now in in Berlin, in, in Munich, so Raisin Scalable Capital, obviously, France. Meilleur which was like an old GS um, company, um, but we could carry on and name like another two dozen, right, in places out, outside of, of, of London that are really showing uh, excellence. So, you know, that is, is super exciting from my point of view, because as, as you said, I'm kind of a fintech junkie. So like, this is what like gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> um, and, you know, I actually don't think that the challenges will uh, materially subside here because, you know, there continues to be national borders and differentiation in currency and so forth, so on. So I think um, you're just going to see like the next generation of each of these. And I assume most European fintechs, they're thinking regionally from day one, right? There, very few are just serving one market uh, for a long period of time. That's totally true. So you, I mean, you obviously can't serve one market for a very long period of time and be be successful here. You really want to tap, you know, the 500 million people across Europe. That's gotten slightly more complicated because doing so now requires like two sets of licenses, right? Obviously. But we found that like in the last five five years that, you know, people knew that was coming and actually set themselves up. And so um, you'll always see someone kind of grow in a particular region or country, exploiting, you know, a legal challenge or an inefficiency. And then we'll look to kind of streamline across the, the rest of Europe. So at, at Balter, you guys specialize in Series A uh, investments, right? Um, but the Series A has changed over the last few years globally. There's been, uh, we all know it, an, an influx of capital, more competition, right? Uh, how have you adapted 
to this new reality? And, and what kind of changes have you seen over the last couple of years? Super fair. So yeah, I mean, we definitely still are predominantly a Series A a firm. Um, we obviously raised our growth fund earlier this 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 year, six hundred eighty million, and so um, you know we are super excited to be addressing more than just the the Series A. But if you look at kind of the totality of our, our history, like that has been where where we have focused. It has evolved a lot. So um, you know, Series A's in Europe have gotten bigger. They have gotten more more competitive, right? And they've gotten earlier. So like what does all this collectively means bigger because uh, the size of the opportunity has continued to expand and founders want to go after that opportunity earlier and more more aggressively so in order for us to to maintain what we think is like the right investment ownership level you know that is one of the other reasons why we've kind of we've grown our fund along the way you know two more competitive within Europe, by the way, right? So um, each of these cities that I have, have mentioned have incredibly strong seed networks now that you know, fund the first stage of, of all of these investments across the, the respective cities and, and, and countries. The number of seed funds has like multiplied in the last decade very, very positively. Um, and so what does that mean for us? We need to be very, very close to the best of, of those. And two, we need to be very clear on what it is that we bring to the party when we work with with founders, which as I've already mentioned, is like that that commitment to really standing side by side with you throughout the the entire journey and being more than just capital. Second thing. And then to the third comment, I think there like where our focus has has continued to be is to size our investments in a way that allows us to like continue to commit capital throughout the journey, basically. And as the ecosystem evolves and then you know, the, the fundraising environment changes. Have you found that, I guess, the support that you provide founders and, and the, the questions that you're getting, has that also changed? Do you find that founders tend to be, you know, maybe a little bit more seasoned and, and more sophisticated than before? Uh, maybe tell us, you know, so what are some of the top areas where you get involved with founders? Well, for sure, founders are more seasoned. That's for two reasons. One, we're now in a world of second-time founders in Europe. You know, we have a number of them actually in our portfolio that we backed the first time, and now we back the the, the second time. So, example: Sujay Tile, Frontier Car Group out of Germany now has Mirama, um, which is mostly focused on like Latin America. You know, Matt Matt Robinson with Go Go Cardless the first time now at like Nested. So, you know, we've had the pleasure of backing um, some of our uh, most interesting early founders in their second endeavors. So definitely more, more seasoned and um, more networked. And so even if you're a first-time founder, you have access to these multi-time founders. And so just a little bit like savvier all, all around. And so that what that means is that like, you know, you just can't go in and see a founder and say, say I'm going to help you with some hiring. That's like useless. You have to like really demonstrate, you know, for for each founder, what is the like area of excellence or expertise that you have to offer um, that is aligned with with their business. And look, sometimes in some stages of their business, founders are just looking for money. That's it, because they're actually full on counsel, right? They've got a great Series C, they've got a great Series A, they've a great Series B. You get to Series C, they don't want no more counsel. They just want the money and they want to carry on with their counselors to prosecute their business. Also fine. But at every stage, you know, we need to, to think about like, what is it that the founder needs? How can we work with them in order to be best in service of their goal to grow their, their business? Yeah, you, you mentioned more networks. Um, I was catching up with someone from 
the Kaufman Foundation. Uh, and they're mentioning that they did some empirical analysis and some of the, I think the top determinant to kind of try to predict whether a founder was going to be successful or not was, you know, how big was their network in the industry, mm. right? So knowing the right people definitely helps. Rana, something that I think caught my eye with regards to Balderton is that you you recently released a, a report, you, you know, your goals, your sustainable future goals. And, and, you know, we usually see NGOs or the UN do this. Uh, we don't usually see venture capital firms or even private equity firms, you know, publish this kind of, uh, this kind of goals. First of all, what was the, the motivation behind it? And how is it helping guide your investments? No, that's a great question. So um, you're right. You know, it's not something that you you often see. We are not an NGO. So I'll say, you know, unequivocally, we are, you know, an investment firm that is not an impact investment firm, you know, per, per se. But when we, as a as a firm, not just as a partnership, think about what it means to be, you know, a great investor in, in the future, frankly, from today forward, it became very strongly felt that it wasn't just blindly returns. It was actually returns that had some sort of betterment attached to them. And the reason for that, you know, isn't some desire to like save, save the world. It is the zeitgeist, you know, of the moment that consumers care about climate. They care about diversity. They care about the kind of employers that, that they have and the, the civility around those, those employers. And they direct their, their custom be it at the enterprise level, be it at the banking level, be it at like the consumer good level based on that too, right? So it was this like dual tension of like wanting to be responsible investors who who bettered that um, as well as recognizing that like doing this, you know, isn't just like a charitable undertaking. It's actually like really great business for the companies that solve these biggest problems and who are seen as being responsive to um, the sentiment of the of the consumer base, frankly. And look, we totally hold ourselves to account. So we did an audit of ourselves. There are some areas we can do a lot better in. We are also incredibly proud to have what's called the diversity VC level two certification, which only 10 funds globally have, which speaks to the, how diverse we are as, as a firm and the kind of policies that we put in place to, to support our own um, teams, but then also to support the teams of our investments um, and to uh, set a set of principles that we then action at, at boards also. It's interesting that you, you say that this is a, you know, basically a, a reflection of the zeitgeist because I, I remember interviewing two very, very different people and both talking about this. One, one was Doug Peterson, who's the CEO of S&P Global, and then another one is David Veles, who, of course, the founder CEO of Nubank. And in both interviews, they mentioned the importance of ESG and specifically, you know, the importance of responsible business, taking care of your environment and your community. So I, I, was, I was very pleased to, to see that. Uh, Rana, so you, um, as, a, as an investor, of course, you, the, the main job that everyone thinks of as a venture capitalist is to back founders and to make an investment. But part of your responsibility is also to return capital to your investors. And that means that at some point you have to sell, right? And when, when I talk to 
investors, seasoned investors, you know, about some of their mistakes, it's usually, you know, them selling at the wrong time or not selling, <laughs> you know. Um, how, how do you think about that? Uh, constantly is the, is, is the answer. And, you know, it kind of is the case across the life. So in Europe, the selling at the, long, at the wrong time for a long time was selling too early, too cheap, right? It was a function of believing you had to be bought by an American firm to be big. And it was also a function of an aversion to doing secondary from, from the founders. And so, you know, founders did the calculus that went something like I could sell this whole thing at 300 million. I own a third of it post-tax. I've secured myself, my children and their children, if we're smart, let's do that. Right. And the reality is that like, you know, all the boards needed to do a decade ago was be like, uh, why don't we let you do a little bit of secondary so you can buy a house and fund your kids' college funds. And they would have been very happy to carry on. Right. So the big innovation that we're very proud to be a part of was actually starting that trend to allowing secondary. And we actually launched Europe's first secondaries, venture-focused secondary fund in 2018. And now, you know, four years on, it's like the norm, but you had to make it the norm. So I think that's like an incredibly important thing. So that's how it went wrong in exits historically here, which is too, too soon, right? On the other side, it's always a combination of like hubris and believing that your opportunity is like unique against the macro environment, right? So all of us are guilty of this. Every single person, anyone who says that they're not is not telling you the truth. So what do I mean by these, these, these two things? You know, obviously an IPO is not the end of a journey for a company. They're still like growth. They're still, you know, new, new product, um, you know, but the business of an early stage venture fund is to invest in early stage venture companies, you know, not to have an extremely large public market portfolio. And so there's an expectation that at some point you need to like exit that responsibly at the right time, supporting the company appropriately, so forth, so on. Right. And so, you know, the, the big errors that, 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 that get made or that, um, you know, in, in the face of a macro fact, fact pattern, we all fall in love with our own portfolio and we think it's going to be different than the macro fact, fact pattern. And you know, it is rarely the case that the macro fact pattern isn't one that should be paid, paid attention to. And then look, the, the hubris is like super related to that, which is like, we think we understand the dynamics of the company better than the public market does. And, you know, the, the reality is that in most cases, the earliest of investors actually come off the board prior to going in most cases, right? One, because the company wants a public focused board Two, because the earlier point about it not being like the existential mission of an early stage venture fund to hold public stock at some point you want to sell that you can't, if you're sitting on, on, on the board, obviously. So yeah, I think this is the place that like gives me heartburn a lot because, you know, getting it right or wrong on timing has a major impact on the IRR, not on the money over money, obviously always. Um, and it's a place that we never as an industry actually spend enough time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating point. Did you have mentors on the way that helped you? Did you have coaches? Yeah, I have been enormously blessed to have incredible mentors. Um, you know, I was very early on mentored um, at, at Goldman Sachs by the woman who was CEO of the, the, the trading business, a woman called Michelle Pingera. Um, and then, you know, probably since 2008 on, I've, you know, I think the greatest blessing of my, my career was my first boss, in, one of my two first bosses in, in, in London called Robert Markwick. Robert remains a friend and a mentor and, you know, someone who you know, gave me tough love in the moments that I needed it the most. 
and a guiding hand in the moment they needed it the most. So it's really been fabulous. And I could name any number of people that have taken an interest in my career over the years at, at Goldman, you know, the, the treasurer of Goldman currently, Beth, Beth Hammock is like another person. I just can't imagine where I would be if you know they hadn't taken a chance really early on on someone young. I was like 29 when I made MD. People thought that was like insane, right? Um, and you don't do that unless you have people who are willing to like back you and take a risk on you. And I know they all took a massive risk on, on me. Uh, books, I'm going to disappoint you. I don't think I've ever read a business book, <laughs> honestly, except for like my textbooks at, at, at Wharton. And maybe if you count it as a business book, the, the David Allen book on how to organize your time. But I think that's more like a time, time management book that really hasn't been a way we'll, that I've gone. We'll make it count. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, look, the, the best piece of, of, of guidance that I've, that I've always gotten has been to be in command of the, of the details and to really kind of know my details. Um, and then, you know, to, to make sure that like, I prosecute the, the business, whatever it is, you know, in, in a manner that leaves me with like a clear and moral conscious. And then the third one is to always keep in mind that like the acceptability of your message is not just a function of like the words that leave your mouth, but how they leave your mouth. And so like making sure to be attuned to the room, the audience as a way to kind of progress whatever investment idea or message or thesis or you know, business idea that, that you have is, um, is critically important. Uh, and, and so I guess to, before I let you go, uh, Rana, as a wrap up, going forward, right? What makes you most excited about, I guess, the, the road ahead, both for Balderton and uh, the European entrepreneurial ecosystem? Everything. So um, <laughs> I'm going to quote my partner, Daniel, right? So who said that like a decade ago, he used to look and envy at like his counterparts in the US at the richness of the opportunity that, that they have. You know, he envies no more. And I think that's just true, right? We are like, in my mind, at the golden age of, of, of investing here in Europe, we are incredibly lucky to have been here for so long that like, you know, we are part of the ecosystem in the most deep and entrenched manner possible. And yet I would say like, you know, for dollars chasing opportunity, you know, Europe is still less competitive than, than, than the, the United States. So we, it's the great combo of having like no more envy about the opportunity and being in a privileged position to address that, that, that opportunity that gets me like very excited every single morning. I love it. I want to run that. Thank you so, so much for joining. Complete and absolute treat. And uh, I'm sure the audience is going to love uh, this, this episode. It's always a pleasure chatting. It's completely my, my pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Rana Yared, General Partner at Balderton Capital. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. <laughs>